The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Now I'd like to uh, reflect with you on uh, what we're going to try to do. We want to explore the content and structure of Old Testament revelation from the perspective of the New Testament. Now, of course, that statement reflects a conviction that the New Testament does have a perspective on the Old Testament. And in one of the lectures, uh, we'll be talking about that. And uh, in, particular, in particular, I'll be making uh, references to this uh, book by Leonhard Gopel called uh, uh, Hypos, I guess is the way you have to pronounce an English uh, title, Typos. Uh, uh, it's the uh, it's a book on the typological interpretation of the Old Testament in the New, and uh, uh, Gopelt, who uh, also has written a New Testament introduction, he's written a very learned commentary on First Peter and some other works. He's uh, a very uh, famous uh, Old Testament scholar, German Old Testament scholar, and uh, this book is really quite a remarkable book in showing that the New Testament does have a perspective on the old, and that that perspective is typological. It's a uh, uh, typological fulfillment from the uh, Old Testament into the New. Uh, now, I'm sorry, but uh, they weren't able to get the um, bibliography run off for today, but I'll, I'll have that for you tomorrow, and uh, you'll get the, the, the tales on the, the, the articles. But also, in the uh, uh, Kittle uh, Theological Dictionary, Theological Wordbook, there's an article by this same uh, uh, Dr. Gopel uh, on the word tupos in, uh, in Kittle. Uh, and that, you may not be able to read this book, in the, certainly in this week, or perhaps not for a little while yet, but... Uh, be sure to read the article, get hold of the article and read it, the, uh, the Kittle article, uh, because he makes the case very powerfully that uh, when uh, Paul in Romans 5 uh, refers to uh, Adam as a type of Christ, that he's using the word in a, in a technical sense. That he's really uh, speaking in terms of the New Testament typological perspective in the Old. <coughs> so, in this course, we want to look at the structure of Old Testament revelation. And of course, uh, there's a further conviction involved here that the New Testament attitude, the New Testament perspective, is not foisted on the Old Testament, but grows out of the Old Testament. That the Old Testament itself <coughs> is a book of promise. The Old Testament itself is pointing forward. Uh, and uh, as the New Testament authors tell us, uh, that they without us are not made perfect, that uh, the witness of the prophets <coughs> is pointing forward to a completion 
that only we are able to perceive uh, because <coughs> we live in the time of realization and of fulfillment. <coughs> As Peter says in the first chapter of his epistle, uh, he says, the, concerning which salvation the prophets sought and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what time or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did point unto, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow them, to whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto you did they minister these things, which now have been announced unto you through them that preached the gospel unto you by the Holy Spirit sent forth from heaven, which things angels desire to look into. You see, uh, Peter is affirming there that uh, the message of the prophets points forward to that which is fulfilled in uh, Jesus Christ and therefore uh, to something that we now can appreciate. <clears throat> and then in the second place is, of course, objective to gain an appreciation of the unity of the Old Testament in its focus on Jesus Christ. With all the variety of forms of literature in the Old Testament, with all the span of years in which uh, the Old Testament scriptures were written down, uh, there is a, an overarching unity, and uh, the unity, of course, is not the history of Israel. The unity is the unity of God's dealings with Israel. And God's dealings with Israel have for their purpose and focus uh, the climax of redemption in the coming of Jesus Christ. Third, to ground the preaching and teaching of the Old Testament in the redemptive historical perspective. <clears throat> now, some of you are, are uh, very familiar indeed with... Uh, that language of redemptive historical perspective or of uh, biblical theological approach. Uh, others of you uh, may only be getting exposed to it uh, for the first time here. Uh, now, what is meant by that is that the Bible is given in the process of history, that there is an unfolding, there is a disclosing of the revelation of God with respect to our redemption. Uh, it is not given to us all at once. Uh, you know, uh, Mohammed claimed that uh, the Koran was given to him over a relatively short period of time, to one man in his lifetime and in a certain part of his lifetime. Now, to be sure, uh, Mohammed did claim to receive corrections uh, uh, because God is... Uh, completely arbitrary in Islamic theology. He's also free to contradict himself. And uh, therefore, Islamic scholars have to look with some care as to when a revelation was given, since the later one supersedes the earlier one. It's the last edition that counts. And, but, uh, but nevertheless, you see, it was a, a book given in a very short period of time. Whereas the Old Testament stretches over all these years. And the Old Testament, therefore, and of course the New as well, uh, has a dynamic quality, an unfolding quality. It, it, it is carried forward in a progressive way. So that the revelation of God is not given to us all at once. Which means that as you go through God's revelation, you are being prepared at earlier points for that which you're going to be given more fully at a later point. Now we'll have a lot of time to talk about this, uh, but... Not only is there a progressiveness, but there is a progressiveness that's characterized uh, by an epochal quality, uh, the periods of the history of redemption. 
Now, we're all familiar with that in a general way in terms of the dispensationalism, the Schofield Reference Bible, which has had such a tremendous impact on American evangelicalism, uh, was a Bible that uh, had its uh, impact, I think, very largely because uh, theology had been taught so much in a way that ignored history. Uh, theology had been taught in accordance with the topics of theology. Uh, what does the Bible teach us about God, about man, about sin, about salvation, about Christ? And then under each topic, uh, you would have proof texts to show that the Bible really did teach what was being alleged. Well, that's a legitimate way of uh, studying theology, although you may not be uh, quite recognizing what you do when you study it that way. <laughs> uh, John Frame has rendered a great service by calling our attention to what it is that we do. Uh, he points out that uh, what we are doing is not uh, improving the Bible, surely, uh, not uh, cleaning it up, uh, not giving it some necessary organization, um, uh, but what we are doing is applying the Bible. Uh, we are seeing uh, what we need to know where we are as uh, the Word of God is given to us. And we're also doing something else. We're looking back from the climax of the Bible, looking back down to see how the Lord has progressively revealed these things that have now come to their climax in Jesus Christ. And so, uh, systematic theology, as it's sometimes called, theology under topics, under heads, uh, is theology, really, that is applied to our understanding where we are, where we sit, giving answers to questions that we have. Now, of course, it also reshapes our questions, but uh, nevertheless, uh, it is uh, theology that has a different shape uh, from the way in which revelation is given in the Bible. Uh, it's, uh, it's being shaped now by us as we look at the Bible to say, what does it say to us, where we are, and the problems we have? So it's a form of application to our needs. Is that clear? You see the point I'm making? Uh, uh, Frame's book on uh, the doctrine of the knowledge of God, uh, his uh, recent book, which is the first of quite a series that he's writing on uh, uh, the whole area of apologetics. And it, it's, a, it's, it's an excellent book, and he makes this uh, point very, very clearly there. So, uh, we are not talking about what would be described as systematic theology, topical theology, a theology that tries to put in one package everything the Bible says to the whole length of it. But we're talking about a theology that is often called biblical theology, not in the sense that its content is biblical, because we trust that the content of systematic theology is biblical too, but it's biblical in the sense that it respects the form of the Bible, the way in which the Bible is given to us in history, given to us in periods of history. So uh, you think of uh, uh, the way the Bible begins with creation. You have the period from uh, creation to the fall. You have the period from the fall to the flood. You have the period from the flood to the call of Abraham. 
from the call of Abraham to Moses and so on. You go through the, the history of the Bible and there are these periods. And then you will notice that there are different emphases in different periods. Uh, the period, for example, from the fall to the flood uh, is a, a, a period in which the great emphasis is on the, the reality and the depth and depravity of human sin. That all the imaginations of the thoughts of men's heart are only evil continually. There's a, a tremendous emphasis on sin and on God's judgment uh, against sin in the flood. So as you go from period to period, you see different emphases, different uh, thrusts. Uh, and uh, that's what we'll be doing. We'll be looking at the Old Testament uh, with a view to the historical development of God's revelation as he gives it to us. Now, there's a, a parallel always between the history of redemption and the history of revelation. The history of redemption is the history of what God is doing uh, for the salvation of lost men. The history of revelation is the history of God's uh, telling us what he's doing. Uh, God's word always accompanies God's acts. And uh, uh, there's a so-called acts of God theology that sounds very honoring to God since it's talking about his acts, but which really has a, a hidden purpose of shifting attention away from the word of God to the works of God. And, uh, of course, we shouldn't do that. It's uh, the word of God that tells us the meaning of the works of God. So we try to ground uh, preaching and teaching of the Old Testament in the redemptive historical perspective. Then in the fourth place, to guide the preacher-teacher in the use of New Testament typological method in interpreting Old Testament texts. Uh, we want to work on that and see how the typology of uh, the New Testament interpretation applies to Old Testament texts. And then in the fifth place, to assist the preacher-teacher in discovering the fruitfulness for application in presenting Christ as the fulfillment of the history of redemption. Now, it's often said, uh, by way of criticism, of the sort of emphasis that I'll seek to be making in this course, it's often said by way of criticism that uh, finding Christ in the Old Testament may be an interesting exercise uh, may sometimes display great ingenuity on the part of the people who set out to do it, but that one thing that it certainly isn't, it isn't very edifying. It isn't very practical. It isn't very helpful in terms of the daily life of the people of God. Uh, how is it going to uh, help you in your daily walk uh, to understand, for example, uh, what the, uh, uh, the seven-branch candlestick in the tabernacle meant. Or how is it going to help you in uh, leading your Christian life uh, to uh, a examine, we'll say, uh, Ezekiel's vision of the fall of uh, Jerusalem when he had to make a little model of the city and the wall, you know, How's that going to help anybody? Or uh, if by any stretch of the imagination you could find Christ in the description of Ezekiel's temple, uh, well, what good would that be to anybody? Uh, how, how would that help anybody forward with his marriage? Uh, uh, you see, these are the kind of questions that, that are put to us often. 
And it's often said that even if this is well done, even if uh, you can go back and uh, deal with David and Goliath, and, and you can really succeed in persuading people that David was not uh, just, uh, uh, you know, the little guy who was a dead eye with a slingshot, uh, but that he was uh, the Lord's anointed, uh, who was a type of Christ as he went forth against uh, the, the power of darkness. Uh, even if you can succeed in persuading people of that, that the topology is really there, but it's intentional, that Jesus is not David's greater son for nothing, that David was not anointed for nothing, but that the anointing... Uh, has a typological significance pointing forward to Christ, even if you can persuade everybody of all that. Uh, by the time you've done so, uh, you've already gone over the 20 minutes allotted to you for preaching, <laughs> and it's going to be no way that you can ever uh, help uh, anybody with anything practical. Whereas, if you preach moralistically and forget about topology, uh, then you can be right on target. Why not? Uh, here's David, little guy, big giant, not afraid. Folks, don't be afraid. There's a lot of giants out there, but you got your little old slingshot, and you can let go, and, uh, you know, uh, you, you can leap right to the application by preaching moralistically, can't you? Well, of course, it's a little difficulty. You don't really need David to do that. You could do it as well for, from Superman, you know, and, uh, uh, or any of the comics. Uh, well, uh, but uh, this is the objection. Now, now um, I, I want to try to develop a little thesis here. <laughs> that, you see, the reality of spiritual motivation is always in terms of redemption. See, it isn't just telling people you ought to be good. They may already believe that. What you've got to tell them is the power that can enable them to be good. What you've got to tell them is that which sets them free from sin. And you see, there's one who's the Redeemer, and that one is Jesus Christ. And there's one in whom all of salvation is summed up, and that one is Jesus Christ. And the reason the Lord has, the reason Adam and Eve didn't drop dead at the foot of the tree when they ate of the forbidden fruit, the reason they didn't drop dead at once was that God had a plan. And the plan that God had was that he would send his only begotten son into the world. So the reason there is history from uh, Eden to, to Bethlehem is the fact that God intended to send Jesus Christ to be the Savior. And therefore, in our preaching, uh, remember, when we focus on Jesus Christ, we're focusing on the heart of the needs of the people you're ministering to. Because it is Jesus Christ that they need. It is salvation that they need. And when you can show them from the Old Testament how Jesus Christ is being prepared for, then, you see, you're dealing with realities. And you're not just giving them some example. Now, to be sure, there are examples. In Hebrews 11, a whole chapter full of examples. But what are the examples of? Hebrews 11. 
What is he talking about? Faith. Faith. Exactly. Examples of faith. See? Those who look forward, as he tells us at the end of chapter 11, they knew that without us, they could not be made perfect. What were the examples of faith? Faith in what? Faith in Christ. Looking forward, you see? Waiting and watching and believing that God was going to come in the power of his salvation. So, uh, you see, uh, if you're preaching Christ, you're preaching faith, and you're pointing people to him, and you're pointing them to the meaning of their salvation in Jesus Christ. And so the Old Testament actors in the great history of redemption are examples for us, uh, not first of all in their moral qualities of being brave or being chaste or being wise, they're examples to us, first of all, of being believers, of trusting in Christ, in whom there is hidden all the wisdom of God and all the boldness of the one whose name is the El Gabor, God the Mighty One. You see, it's in Christ that we find the realization of all of these things. Well, we'll get back to this subject uh, fairly often as we go along here. Uh, I... I want to exhort you on that one, but I also want to try to persuade you (laughs) to show you how it really does work out, okay? Now, uh, in the course structure, I'll be lecturing on the witness uh, to Christ in the Old Testament history, prophecy, psalms, and wisdom literature, and uh, I'll be uh, calling your attention to certain readings, um, and uh, I've already mentioned now uh, one that I want you to do, the uh, two-plus article in Gopelt's uh, um, uh, book, uh, I mean the two-plus article in the uh, uh, Kittle uh, uh, Theological Dictionary. And... uh, I would also like you to read through this book on preaching and biblical theology. Now, you can skip the first chapter uh, that says, what is biblical theology? And I've tried to tell you already, so there's no sense in uh, having to read it over again. And besides that, I try to deal with why liberals can't do biblical theology very well, because they don't, I mean, they may be very good at it in the detail, but they... They can never give you the overall picture because they don't believe in the unity of the Old Testament. You don't have that. You don't really have the, the heart of biblical theology. But the, starting with the, the second chapter of this book, Preaching and Biblical Theology, it's, uh, uh, that will give you background and reading uh, for what we're talking about. I will uh, I'll also just mention one other book now. It's by Richard M. Davidson. It's called Topology in Scripture. Now, Davidson is a Seventh-day Adventist scholar, and this was, uh, I think, a doctoral dissertation that he prepared. It's uh, published in Berrien Springs, uh, Michigan, uh, which is the Seventh-day Adventist press. Uh, This is a, a very excellent description of the history of typological interpretation and then an exposition of the biblical approach to uh, topology. It's very helpful. And uh, uh, I'm not requiring that you read it for the course, but I am calling your attention to it because I think it's a book uh, that you'll find helpful in understanding topology. I I am assuming that many of you uh, have an ingrained prejudice against topology because you were once burned by it. 
always find people in classes over the years uh, who avoid typology like the plague uh, because they had uh, been caught up at one time in typology that was so fanciful and so imaginative and so far-fetched that uh, they really decided that the whole exercise was for the birds and they have uh, uh, moved away from it. Well, I want to try to get you back uh, to realize there is such a thing as a biblical approach in topology and that the heart of it is the focus on Jesus Christ. Now, let's uh, think about Christ in the Old Testament. Um, There's a great neglect of Old Testament preaching. Uh, There's a great deal of legalism and moralism in preaching and teaching from the Bible. Uh, So often you hear messages uh, based on an Old Testament text where the gospel is just plain missing. Uh, You just have a moralistic approach. And this has been, I think, sadly true of the Sunday school program of the the Christian church in the United States. Uh, So often it's been assumed that the Old Testament narratives are given to us uh, not to present uh, God's great plan of salvation, uh, but simply to hold before us moral examples. Now, of course, uh, it isn't always easy to determine what the moral example means if you look at the lives of Old Testament saints. For not only do the Old Testament saints often prove uh, to provide counterexamples, David and Bathsheba, for example, uh, but uh, uh, even uh, more puzzling is the fact that the Old Testament saints will sometimes do things that are apparently commended Uh, that scarcely seem to be immediate examples for us. You remember when Saul spared Agag, uh, the king of the Amalekites, and remember that uh, Samuel, after condemning Saul for showing mercy when God had called for judgment, remember Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord. Now that's hardly uh, the kind of text that provides an immediate example for young people today. So you you have to uh, give a little thought as to what the context is in the history of redemption, what we are being taught as uh, we are being told about uh, Samuel's bringing of God's judgment down upon uh, the accursed Agag. You remember uh, on the Easter morning, when those two disciples were going back to Emmaus, amazing, you know, they had heard the report of the women that the tomb was empty, and they had heard that the women had seen angels who said that he was alive, and they're still leaving Jerusalem. It's astonishing. Uh, leaving Jerusalem thinking that all their hopes are crushed. Uh, we had hoped that it was he who would redeem Israel, but their hopes were lost, So it seems. And then as they're walking along the way, uh, Jesus himself joins them, but they're uh, prohibited from recognizing him. They're not able to recognize him. And then remember that as Jesus uh, met them, uh, he didn't say uh, Cleopas, as he had said Mary in the garden. He didn't bring instant recognition. Instead, as he walked along the way with them, he began to unfold the teaching of the Old Testament. 
he said that they were fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. And then beginning with Moses, back with the Pentateuch, and with all the prophets, he expounded to them, he interpreted to them from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He showed how he himself was the fulfillment. And he showed that it behooved the Christ, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. You may have noticed when I read that passage from 1 Peter a few moments ago that Peter uses that same language, the sufferings of Christ and the glory of the Father. So that Jesus expounded from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then as Luke summarizes that at the end of that last chapter of his gospel, uh, he repeats it and then says not only Moses and the prophets, but Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And these, of course, were the three great headings of the, script, of the Old Testament scripture. So from all the Old Testament, Jesus was able to open to them the things concerning his sufferings and his glory, the things concerning himself. And this is what we find, then, all through the New Testament. When Peter preaches at Pentecost, he preaches from Psalm 16, the resurrection, from Psalm 110, the ascension and session at the right hand of God. And later, preaching in the temple, uh, Peter proclaims the things which God foreshadowed by the mouth of all the prophets. Uh, he has now fulfilled what the uh, apostles were preaching was the fulfillment of the Old Testament uh, promises. Uh, Peter quotes Deuteronomy. And then he adds these significant words in Acts 3.24. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel, they also told of these days. So you see, Peter's affirming that the whole structure of prophetic witness in the Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus Christ. Uh, when Stephen surveys the history of Israel, as you have it recorded in Acts 7, he makes his defense by surveying the whole Old Testament history of Israel. And he draws that all together in order to show how God is fulfilling these things. How he is not speaking against the temple, but how he is speaking about the fulfillment of all that the temple meant. Uh, Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch uh, as he's uh, uh, driving away in his chariot from having attended the feast in Jerusalem. And beginning with Isaiah 53, 7, uh, he opens to him from all the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, not ending with Isaiah 53, but beginning with Isaiah 53, uh, he goes through the scriptures. And uh, Paul uh, preaches in the synagogues uh, describing the Exodus and uh, how the rulers of Israel had rejected the Lord and are now rejecting the Messiah, who's the seed of David. Uh, at Paul's uh, sermon recorded in Acts 13, verses 16 to 41, does that. Remember that in uh, the apostolic time, while the New Testament was being written, the Old Testament was the missionary book of the Christian church. So in the time of its greatest missionary expansion, while the Christian church went from being just a few disciples uh, in uh, the land of uh, Israel, uh, it uh, moved to uh, spread through the whole Roman Empire, 
And it did that using the Old Testament scriptures as its Bible. Now, of course, uh, the other New Testament scriptures were in the process of being written, uh, but the scriptures that people had, the scriptures from which the apostles read and preached, uh, were the Old Testament scriptures. If you happen to look sometime at a Nestle uh, Greek uh, text, uh, you'll notice that uh, allusions and quotations, that is, either direct quotations or immediate allusions to the Old Testament, uh, are printed in boldface type. And I just invite you to look through a Nestle New Testament and uh, notice that practically every page in the New Testament has boldface type on it. Oh, there are a few exceptions, but just as you leap through, you know, just open it practically anywhere, and there's bold face in the middle of the, of the page. And I, I've had the, the wonderful privilege of being able to spend time writing a commentary of First Peter, and uh, what a what a marvelous book, uh, so uh, full of uh, the, the the teaching of the apostle, grounded in his experience with the Lord, and. Uh, it's a book that is just absolutely immersed in Old Testament quotations, allusions. The whole world of thought is, is directly out of the Old Testament. Uh, it's sometimes it's said the whole book centers around Psalm 34, and that, that psalm does keep surfacing all through. But not just that psalm, it's just the whole Old Testament. Uh, even little things, you know, where uh, he talks about girding yourself, but it's context where the illusion is obviously to the exodus, where they were girded and ready to travel. Well, it's uh, you go through the New Testament, and uh, the, the more carefully you study it, the more you see that the whole of the New Testament is saturated with Old Testament concepts. Now, the history of redemption centers on Jesus Christ. Uh, redemption is initiated by the Lord. <clears throat> Looking now at the history of redemption and the way in which it points to Jesus Christ. And first of all, that redemption is initiated by the Lord. God uh, is the one who is the Redeemer. And uh, I've chosen to begin here with the great act of covenantal liberation in the Old Testament, the Exodus from Egypt. And there is a, a clear presentation of the saving power of God. God says, I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you to go upright. Leviticus 26, verse 13. But my friends, God did not only redeem Israel by bringing them out. He redeemed Israel by bringing them to himself, by meeting with them at Sinai. And remember, we have that beautiful passage in Exodus 19.4 where God says, I brought you on eagle's wings unto myself. Uh, the uh, advocates uh, of liberation theology are correct in saying that the Exodus deliverance is the great act of God, the central act of God in the Old Testament. That's true. But uh, where I find... Uh, uh, liberation theology to be lacking an essential emphasis is in the fact that the primary significance of the Exodus redemption was not freedom from slavery, it was God's covenantal intervention 
by which he claimed his people, in which he brought them out that he might that they might be his. You see, God challenged Pharaoh, he challenged the powers of darkness, and he put his claim upon the people that they would not serve Pharaoh, but rather serve him. So the uh, the thrust, uh, the Old Testament uh, meaning of the Exodus is uh, the stretching forth of God's right hand to claim his people uh, for himself. In uh, Deuteronomy 4, verses 32 to 40, uh, uh, God uh, reminds Moses, of, and Moses reminds the people of how uh, the Lord spoke to him with a voice out of the fire, and then how, as Moses said, he brought thee out with his presence, That is to say, the cloud of the presence of God was with the people as they came out. Leviticus 26, 11 and 12. I will set my tabernacle among you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. God, you see, claims his people as his own, establishes his covenant with them, and walks among them. And the great deliverance of the Exodus is a deliverance with a purpose, a deliverance in order that God might make Israel his own people, a holy nation, a people that belong to him. There's an amazing incident that's recorded in Exodus 33 and 34. You will remember that God, after bringing Israel out of Egypt, brought them to Mount Sinai. Uh, There he spoke to them uh, from the fire on the top of the mountain that represented his presence. He told Moses to assemble to him the people, gather them together, and that they might stand before him in his presence. He spoke to them uh, the words of his covenant, and the people uh, engaged to be obedient to the covenant of God. And of course, God identified himself in his covenant as their redeemer. I am the Lord your God, which has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. God identifies himself as the redeeming God. The people enter into covenant with God. They they swear, they take solemn oath in their assembly before the Lord that they will be obedient to all the words that God has spoken. And then you remember that while Moses goes up into Mount Sinai uh, to receive the written tablets of the law and to receive the instructions for the building of the tabernacle, while he's up in the mountain getting those instructions, uh, the people uh, become impatient. Uh, Moses is up in the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and the people say uh, he's not going to come down, and they get uh, Aaron to make for them a golden calf, and they begin to uh, uh, get themselves involved into the immoralities of Egyptian practices as they set up a big uh, festival uh, worshiping the golden calf. Uh, Moses comes down from the mountain, sees what's going on, flings down the tablets of the law that God had given him, and uh, they they are smashed at the foot of the mountain. And then God's uh, wrath breaks forth on Israel. Uh, Moses uh, summons all who will be faithful to God and end the rebellion to stand with him. And the tribes of Israel all stand in rebellion except for the Levites. And the Levites are then told to, to uh, move out and bring Israel into submission with the sword, which they do. 
and there are many that die in the, uh, quelling that revolt uh, around the golden calf in the wilderness. And it's in that situation, you see, uh, that Moses uh, uh, is saying, what next? What now? What happens from here? And then God speaks to Moses. And you find uh, uh, his revelation in this uh, center, the very heart, really, of the book of Exodus. Uh, the, the, the revelation of God has been given, and now the sin of the people seems to uh, put a great question mark against all the revelation. And now uh, you find in uh, Exodus 32, verse 34, And now go, lead the people into the place of which I have spoken unto you. Behold, mine angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their uh, sin upon them. And then, in the beginning of 33, God expounds what he means. That the angel will go before them. But God says, I will not go up in the midst of you. Because if I go up in the midst of you, I will consume you. God says, I'm a holy God. You're a stiff-necked people. You're a wicked people. If I go up in the midst of you, it's too dangerous. You're going to be destroyed. So God says, uh, I'll, uh, I'll propose plan B. Instead of going up in the midst of you, I'll go up before you, ahead of you, uh, in the presence of the angel. Now, the, the point is not, as is sometimes suggested, the difference between God and the angel, because the angel is no safer than God himself. <laughs> uh, you remember in Exodus 23, God says, Take you heed before him, describing the angel, and hearken unto his voice, provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. <clears throat> so, the angel is a theophany. The angel is the appearing of the Lord in the form of an angel, really. <clears throat> and God says, I won't go up in the midst of you. That's too dangerous. I will go up ahead of you. I will go up to lead you. And then the Lord says, I will lead you uh, into the land that I've promised to give you. I'll give you all that land. I'll drive out the Amalekites and the Perizzites and all the Hivites and all the Canaanites. I'll drive them all out and I'll give you the land, but I will not go up in the midst of you because it's too dangerous. Instead, Moses, you pitch your tent outside the camp. Now, you see, the plan for the tabernacle was a tent in the middle of the camp where God was going to dwell in the midst of the people. But God says, no, in plan B, we won't do that. We won't build any tabernacle. It's too dangerous for you. So instead, Moses, you set up a tent outside the camp, and uh, Moses, uh, you can stay in that tent. Joshua can stay there on a permanent basis, and uh, that will be your tent, not my tent, your tent, <laughs> outside the camp. But I will come and meet with you there. It will be not a tent of dwelling where I dwell in the midst of you, but it will be a tent of meeting where I will uh, encounter you. And I will meet with you at the, the, uh, the door of that tent. You see the difference? I'm not going to go inside and dwell there. I just come and meet with you there. But, he says, uh, I'll take care of everything <clears throat> that you would want under those situations, in that situation. If, uh, if anybody has to inquire of the Lord, uh, well, they can always ask Moses, and he'll go and meet with the Lord, right? 
And uh, indeed, any Israelite who wanted to could, could go out to the tent of meeting to uh, make his inquiry. Amazing privilege, see? And as Moses went out to meet with the Lord on behalf of the people, every man stood in his own tent door. Just as Moses was going to stand in that tent door, every man stood in his own tent door and watched Moses go out to meet with God. What do you like plan B? Hmm? Pretty good, isn't it? I mean, uh, what better formula for suburban religion could you ask for? I mean, uh, look, God's going to take care of all the enemy, you know. We've transplanted to a U.S. situation. You wouldn't have to worry about the Russians. God will take care of them. And uh, if you got any problem, God's available, right? I mean, you got a counseling center outside the camp. And uh, if things go smash, or the bottom drops out, you can go out there and check, check in with the Lord. Find out something. Isn't that pretty good? And above all, you got a religious professional who can take care of God relations. There's Moses. Isn't that what you pay the preacher for anyway? Huh? So, uh, uh, you, you know, the preacher meets with God, and uh, God's available, and he's going to take care of the enemy, and you don't have to have him too close. So, God's at a convenient distance. Not way up there in glory, that's too far away, you know. But not right here in the middle of the camp, that's too close. Something to think about, isn't it? I mean, uh, how near do you want the Lord in your own life? Would you like to keep him at least at arm's length? Well, that was plan B. And what was Moses' reaction to plan B? Moses said, Oh Lord, I bless your name that at last you've come up with something that fits this people Israel. <laughs> uh, Lord, they are a stiff-necked people. <laughs> Let's face it. And uh, this is a marvelous proposal. And I accept it with the greatest joy on behalf of Israel. Well, you know, he didn't say anything of the kind. Moses uh, cried out in absolute consternation and desolation. He, he, he complains to the Lord. He said, Lord, you told me to bring up this people, and yet now you're not going to let me know who it is that's going with me. <laughs> in other words, I'm not going to know you as, uh, as you've promised. And he says... Um, Consider that this nation is your people. Verse 14. <clears throat> he said, "My God said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. And then Moses said, If your presence does not go with us, and my version puts in with me, but what ought to be supplied is with us. <clears throat> if your presence does not go up with us, carry us not up hence. You see what Moses says, Lord... If you're not going to go in the midst of us, if your presence isn't going to be with us and in the midst of us, then, Lord, we might as well scratch the whole operation. There's no point in going to Canaan. Why go to Canaan anyway? Was it just the milk and honey? Well, the 
Israelites were pretty well satisfied with the diet in Egypt. They kept thinking about the leeks and the onions and the cucumbers. <clears throat> no, why were they going to Canaan? Because that was the place where God was going to set his name. That was the place that had the holy mountain where God was going to dwell. And God was going to dwell in the midst of his people. And so Moses says, Lord, if you don't go up in the midst of us, there's no point in going anywhere. Because the point of the covenant is that you would be our God and we would be your people. The point of the covenant is that your presence would be with us, that you would dwell in the midst of us. And so then Moses prays to God, show me, uh, I pray thee, your glory. Verse 18. And God does show Moses his glory. Puts Moses in the cleft of the rock, passes by covering the rock with his, the cleft of the rock with his hand. And then uh, Moses sees the back of God. And then Moses hears God proclaim his name uh, to him. And he proclaims the name of the God who is sovereign in mercy. Uh, Exodus 33, verse 19, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. The 34, verse 6, The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. You see, God who had revealed himself to Moses as the I am God, the God who is self-determined in his purposes of mercy. He now repeats that as the I will be God. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. He is uh, the God of sovereign grace, sovereign mercy. And he proclaims his name to Moses in those terms. <clears throat> and there, of course, is the resolution of the problem. Because listen to Moses' prayer at the very end of this passage in verse 9. Moses said, If now I have found favor in thy sight, O Lord, let the Lord, I pray thee, go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. Now wait a minute, Moses. Isn't this kind of mixed up? Didn't God say, Because you're a stiff-necked people, I can't go in the midst of you? That's just what he said up in uh, uh, chapter 33, uh, verse 5. Uh, you are a stiff-necked people. If I go up in the midst of you for one moment, I will consume you. And now Moses says, Lord, go in the midst of this because we are a stiff-necked people. Well, what explains the paradox? The next words, and pardon our iniquity and our sin. And how can Moses cry for pardon? Because God has revealed himself as the God of loving kindness and tender mercy, a God of grace, a God of forgiving love. And take us, says Moses, take us for thine inheritance. What an amazing statement. Not, uh, Lord, give us the inheritance, give us the land. God had promised to do that on plan B. No, not just give us the land, but Lord, take us. Make us to be your inheritance. What, a, what an amazing statement. <laughs> that Israel would be God's treasure, that Israel would be God's beloved, that Israel would be the heritage of the Most High, that which God receives. 
Well, that's something to think about, you see. God, in his mercy, consented to dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. You know, that is the, uh, the symbolism of the tabernacle. Remember the plan on which the tabernacle was erected. There was the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary, where this is like a ground plan of it. Uh, there was the Ark of the Covenant, and then there was uh, the veil that veiled off the Ark of the Covenant. Then this was the holy place, and it had a veil. And then the whole, uh, and the whole tabernacle was in an enclosure that was uh, also a veil, uh, with posts all along and curtains, curtaining off the whole enclosure. And then there was the, uh, the brazen altar here with the horns of the altar, and there was the, uh, the laver, the bronze laver, where the water of washing was. There was the seven-branch candlestick. There was the table of the showbread. There was the altar of incense uh, in the plan of the tabernacle. Now notice <clears throat> two things. On the one hand, this plan was a structure of insulation. God was insulated. The holiness of God had a symbolic insulation around it. <laughs> The, so that the holy wrath of God wouldn't break forth upon an unprepared people. God dwelt in the darkness. He dwelt behind the veils of the temple. Uh, so that there was a, a triple veil that separated uh, uh, the stiff-necked people of Israel who were camped around the tabernacle from God who dwelt in the midst. But notice there's another side to the symbolism. It's not only insulation, separation, but it's also a way of approach. <clears throat> because the Israelite could come, he could offer his offering, and the, uh, the, the beast would be burned on the altar. The priest would take the blood of the offering, and after he had washed himself in the labor, he could go into the holy place with the blood of the offering. And remember, the high priest, once a year, went into the Holy of Holies and he sprinkled the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, he sprinkled it with the blood of the offering. <clears throat> so, the plan of the tabernacle was to offer a way of approach so that the worshiper might come into the presence of the Holy God. And you remember how in the 12th chapter of the Epistle to the Hebrews, uh, we are told that now we come, we approach, uh, the verb prosukamai. We have the, the, the right to draw near. We have the right to approach. And we come when we worship to the festival assembly at, of the saints and the angels. Uh, in Israel, you know, they had three feast days, three festivals a year when all of Israel was to gather where God set his name in Jerusalem. Three times a year they all assembled. So says the author of Hebrews chapter 12, we come to a festival assembly and uh, we come to a festival assembly of the saints and the angels, all the holy ones of God who are assembled together. And we join them. And we come, as he says, to God, <clears throat> the God of all, the God of creation, the God of redemption, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to all the saints through all the ages. And he says, to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. And the blood of Abel cried out for judgment from the ground. The blood of Christ cries out for forgiveness from the mercy seat. 
as sprinkled on the very throne of grace. So this is a way of approach that is symbolized, a way to enter into the holy place of the Most High. What a marvelous state. Yes? I have a question. So does that mean that God changed mind in a sense when, you know, when Moses prayed? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, uh, you know, God deals with us so that we can understand. And God is infinite. He's without parts or fashions. <laughs> Uh, he's not subject to change because he's not in time. Infinite, eternal, uh, immutable, unchangeable. Uh, but uh, as God communicates with us, he speaks in language that we can understand. And that language is not misleading. That language uh, has truth content, has meaning. And uh, the only way we can understand it is to put it in terms of our experience. That's why in one chapter in Samuel, it says both that God is not a man, that he should repent, and it also says God repented him of the evil that he was going to do. Well, it's not just a flat contradiction in one chapter. Uh, what it's doing is reminding us that God is God, that he doesn't have the kinds of experiences that we do in ways that we have them, but also that uh, we can understand our relationship with God by thinking of him in personal terms. And when we think of God personally, which the Bible insists that we must, then also we must think of God uh, in ways that are understandable to us. In other words, we use uh, what theologians have been have called uh, anthropomorphisms that, you know, like uh, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro through all the earth. Well, that doesn't mean that uh, God has eyes far less than that God's eyes have legs. Uh, you know, the eyes run. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a figure of speech. Uh, but nevertheless, it tells us something. It says that just as uh, if we were on the throne of the universe, uh, we'd have to look <laughs> all over to see what's going on. Well, God sees what's going on. Of course, he doesn't see it that way, but that, that enables us to understand it. Anthropopathisms, uh, speaking of God's uh, emotions in, in uh, human terms. But you see, these run very deep. Uh, the love of God, and the love of God in Jesus Christ. And you see, uh, it's, uh, we're into this matter, we'll talk about a lot more as we go along. The whole business of uh, uh, metaphorical language. Uh, metaphorical language that nevertheless communicates truth. You see, there's a sense in which. Uh, all our speech is composed of faded metaphors. Uh, it's the experiences of uh, sensation that uh, lie behind the language that we use, even when we speak in, uh, in abstract terms. We say, don't you see what I mean? When we say see, we mean it metaphorically. But that, that's, that's how human language operates. And there's a... Uh, you must, therefore, understand that when we're told of the love of God, uh, that we must uh, appreciate what it means. That not only did Christ in his human nature pay a price at the cross of Calvary, but the Father paid a price because he gave his only begotten Son. And that showed his love, that he gave his Son. And you see, uh, you're speaking there of something that is at the heart of our whole Christian profession, uh, even though the language as language has a metaphorical aspect to it. And 
also did it also made that from then on or from here on the, uh, the tabernacle goes in the center. Yes, right, right. No more tent outside the camp. The the tab and see that's why it had to be built this way. See, if it's just a meeting place outside the camp, then it's not God's dwelling, and then you don't need all these curtains, and you don't need all this elaborate ritual. It's God's dwelling that makes the ritual needed. Okay. So God uh, comes uh, to dwell in the midst of his people, and he shows his abiding presence among them. And he also reveals his sovereign word. Uh, you see I've noted there there in your outline his redeeming act his abiding presence and then uh, his uh, sovereign uh, word and that sovereign word is his covenantal law God speaks uh, his word and uh, it is a word of remembrance and a word of promise Uh, think of God's word to Israel at Sinai I am the Lord your God which have brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage there's the remembrance God's saying look what I've done for you and then it also includes promise because he is the Lord your God the Lord who has assembled you, you together in order that he might do you good and he reveals his name you see Moses' prayer uh, in that Exodus 33 passage was that God would reveal his name to him so he might know him and then God proclaimed his name and you'll notice that uh, in the Gospel of John that passage from Exodus 34 is uh, quoted in the first chapter of the Gospel of John for <clears throat> He says there in verse 14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, uh, tented among us. And uh, there, of course, is a direct reference to God's dwelling in the tabernacle in the midst of Israel. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. Now see, Israel beheld God's glory, didn't they, when the tabernacle was set up among them. The cloud of the glory of God rested on the tabernacle. So Jesus Christ tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father. Then notice the words, full of grace and truth. And there's a direct quotation from Exodus 34 where God says he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and full of grace and truth. And so uh, John says, Jesus Christ is the one in whom God tabernacles among us. He is the one in whom, where we see the glory of God. <clears throat> and he's the one who is full of grace and truth. And then notice he says in verse 17, <clears throat> For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now you see, when John mentions the law, he's not. the word doesn't have the same connotation that it has in the writings of Paul. Paul is setting the law as over against the gospel. He's talking about how the law cannot provide righteousness for wicked people. It can only condemn them. And the gospel redeems them. But when John says the law was given by Moses, he's using the word in the sense of the writings of Moses, the Torah. The law is given by Moses. And he's really, in a way 
You know that from the Gospel of John. You know because Jesus says that if you believe Moses, you believe me. Moses wrote of me. <coughs> Moses is a witness to Jesus Christ. Moses writes of Christ. So the law is given by Moses, but grace and truth, and John knows he's quoting from the law of Moses when he says grace and truth. So he says, in effect, the law that spoke of grace and truth, the law that gave us the promise of grace and truth, the law that tells us that God is full of grace and truth, that law now comes to realization in Jesus Christ. The law is given by Moses, but the grace and truth of which the law spoke, that comes to us in Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a beautiful way, you see, that John is building this whole section out of the background of Exodus 33 and 34. And then notice verse 18, no man has seen God at any time. And then, uh, <clears throat> as it is in the best text, uh, Monogamous for us, uh, God the only begotten, the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, that is God the Son. Uh, <coughs> Monogamous for us, the only begotten God in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared it. So it is Jesus Christ who reveals to us uh, the, the truth of the Word of God. <coughs> Now, the warrant that's given for the Word of God in the Old Testament is the treaty text, the, the tablets of the law. Uh, Exodus 31:18. the tablets were written by the finger of God. So they are God's covenantal law given uh, by his own uh, writing on the tablets of stone. Uh, <coughs> the uh, uh, Meredith Klein has uh, well argued that the two tablets uh, does not mean that on the first tablet the first four commandments are written and on the second tablet uh, the other six commandments are written. Uh, but he well argues that the reason you have two tablets uh, in God's uh, uh, treaty text with Israel is the same reason that they had two tablets in the ancient Hittite treaty text that had been discovered the Hittite suzerainty treaty text that some of you are quite familiar with. Uh, uh, you know about this uh, discovery of these Hittite uh, texts. And in those texts, it was always required that one copy of the treaty was kept by the uh, great king, and the other copy was kept by the vassal king. Uh, the great king would impose the treaty upon the vassal and the vassal would have his copy, and the sovereign, the suzerain, would have his copy. And so the two copies of the law follow the same principle. One copy is God's copy, the other copy is the people's copy. Now the reason they're both kept in the same place in the Ark of the Covenant is that in this case, the shrine of the, the sovereign king is identical with the shrine of the vassal. <laughs> so there's only one place to put it. Uh, that is under God's throne, uh, symbolically. And so, the uh, Israel, uh, you get the thought behind it, though, see? If God isn't faithful to his covenant, then Israel could say, uh, get out our copy of that covenant. And there it is. God said, I am the Lord your God. Well, Lord, are you ours or not? Are you with us or not? Of course, Israel in rebellion did uh, say that very challenge to God many times. 
But then you see, God can also get out his copy. And I, uh, uh, you agreed <laughs> that uh, you would uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, love your neighbor yourself, the summary of the law. You, you agreed that you'd do these things and uh, uh, look at what you've done, very obviously. And God does do that <laughs> uh, through the prophets, you see. So uh, you have the two tablets of the law uh, and uh, the one written by the very uh, finger of God. Um, you know, this is, uh, this is really interesting. Uh, <clears throat> all the critical theories that so abound about the nature of Scripture, and particularly about the nature of written Scripture, uh, how different they would be if uh, people really believed that this happened. You know, that God really did prepare the tablet of the stone and give it to Moses. Because then, you see, you have, uh, that short circuits quite a few of the problems that people have imagined, right? <laughs> About how God's word gets into writing. And the answer is, God wrote it. <laughs> he not only spoke, he also wrote. And, uh, you know, people that have problems uh, with language, the very character of language, uh, it cannot contain revelation. Revelation is uh, too esoteric to be contained human language. Well, okay, how about a tablet of stone? You know? And God writes it himself and says, here you are. And why did God write it? Of course, to make it objective. What other reason? Why on stone? So it's permanent. No argument. It's the whole point of a treaty text, isn't it? You know, and people tell us that the word of God is... Uh, is always dynamic, you know, and it can't be contained in history. You get all this Bardianism that Revelation is uh, this uh, this vertical, you know, and bang, it hits the, the horizontal at the point of impact, uh, you know, like a atom smasher or something that uh, that uh, accelerated an electron goes wham or whatever they accelerate. I don't know. I can't, what's it hit? A proton or another electron? But anyway, it goes wham. And uh, uh, all you get is something indirect. You get uh, not revelation, but uh, the, the effect of the impact of revelation on the photographic plate. You know? That's the Barton view of scripture. It's, a, it's, a, it's man's reaction to the impact of the divine revelation. But the revelation can't have any extension in history on a Bardian theology uh, because it can only be uh, the very, uh, in a sense, the very paradox. Uh, it goes back to Kierkegaardian philosophy that the infinite, uh, the paradox is the infinite uh, <clears throat> encountering the finite. But you see, here God writes. And God says, here it is, and it's in history, and it's in time, and it's there, and the very first copy written by God himself. Now, of course, it's not only through the sin of Israel, it's also through the mercy of God <coughs> that uh, the divinely written tablet uh, was not the one that Israel finally kept. <laughs> you know, the second copy was written by Moses, not by God. Uh, that would be uh, a too great a temptation to worship uh, the, the tablet rather than the Lord. Remember even the serpent of brass that Moses lifted up in the wilderness and people began to uh, worship it and 
when the king gave it its comeuppance, he called it Nahashtan, a thing of brass. <laughs> it's not to, not to be worshipped. And God didn't let them keep that original tablet, or surely they would have worshipped it instead of God. But, my friends, you see the importance of the fact that God does give his word to us, and that that sovereign word of God demands of us holiness to him. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 11.44, and Peter repeats it in 1 Peter 1.16. Now, friends, the, the covenantal law of God stands over against (coughs) all legalism. The God who revealed his name at the bush, the God who gave his law at Mount Sinai, uh, is the God who speaks, the God who gives to us the revelation of that which is pleasing in his sight. But as he gives to us his word, he gives it as his own word. Now, you see, I've been speaking against a Bardian view of revelation that does not take account of the objectivity of the Word of God. But I want to warn you against another danger. Not a Bardian view of revelation, but a legalistic view, a pharisaical view of revelation, if you please. Uh, A view of revelation that relates to the law, but not to the God who speaks in the law. You see? And Jesus had to deal with that with the Pharisees. They made the law like a ceiling over their heads. And they kept relating to the law and not to God. So all they did was count the anise and the cumin, the the little details of the law, and they ignored justice and mercy. They ignored the heart of the law uh, because they ignored the God of the law. They were attached only to the externals and not to the divine revelation. So on the one hand, we say, yes, God's revelation is objective, it's there. And we can't just go to this schematism. But on the other hand, neither can we forget uh, the vertical as we affirm the horizontal. Uh, We have to recognize that it is God who speaks in the law and our dealings uh, are dealings with the living God. You see, there has been a great deal of preaching that has been uh, faithful to the word of God, in a sense, um, that really has fallen into the trap of legalism. You know, for example, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, you have a long section on the law of God. And with each commandment, the catechism asks uh, what it is that the commandment forbids and what it is that the commandment enjoins. Now, uh, there have been many uh, ministers of the Word of God who have preached on the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and have more or less taken their outline from the catechism. They preach on a commandment, and first they will tell the congregation what the commandment forbids, and then they will tell them what the commandment favors, what it enjoins, and then they stop. And in so doing, 
they fall into the trap of preaching legalistically. They just say, you mustn't do this, and you must do that, and then end the message. Now, you see, that forgets that the Shorter Catechism gives you a context. The Shorter Catechism doesn't begin just to say these are the commandments of God. And the Shorter Catechism uh, tells you about what man's duty and calling is to love God uh, as we should. Uh, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And then the Catechism goes on to explain the whole way of salvation. It tells us about justification, about sanctification, adoption, glorification. It tells you about who Jesus Christ is and what he did for us. And you see, not until it's told you all that does it tell you how we ought to live to glorify him. But you see, if you just pull out of the catechism what it says about one commandment and ignore the setting that the catechism provides, then you're really not preaching the gospel. You can end up by preaching law and not gospel, really. And uh, that, that, that can be a great... Uh, great disadvantage, of course, uh, because you can make people feel guilty that they've broken the law, and then you show them how much more they ought to be doing, and they'll feel more guilty yet, but that hasn't helped them to find forgiveness. It hasn't helped them really to repent and to, to know where the way of forgiveness is to be found. And it hasn't helped them either to understand what will motivate them to keep the commandments of God. 